From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. You're about to listen to our new show, The Groundsman Conversations, which is brought to you by Sports Digiter. Sports Digiter is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders, agencies, and brands that brings your story to life within immersive, exciting, easy-to-create proposals and presentations. Used by more than 50% of teams in the top leagues in the US, Sports Digiter's technology enables partners to ditch PowerPoint and Keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting, cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigiter.com to book your demo. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? Another edition, a brand new year for the three of us and uh, the series of guests that we're going to bring you this year. So much to look forward to. And we have one of those guests joining us today. More of that in a minute. First, let me uh, bring in my two co-hosts uh, from the lake, in the lake, by the lake, Roger Mitchell in Como. Hi, mate. I'm actually not in Como. I'm in Treviso today, which is... Treviso. Um, yeah, it's near uh, Venice. So they've got a funny accent. I'm doing my my January uh, teaching course here this week. So um, um, do you, do you got, teach it in Scottish or in Italian? Uh, it's a mixture, actually. Talking of funny accents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like they don't understand it anyway, like most of the no. sports industry, but it's fine. Funny that. And also joining us, as always, because it wouldn't be the same without him, the pirate captain himself, Giles Morgan. Hello, Grant. Hello, Roger. Happy New Year. Happy, Happy New, New Year, Year, everybody. Roger, didn't you tell me once that there's something famous that was invented in Treviso? Yeah, tiramisu. 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 Yeah. There we go. There we yeah. go. <laughs> well, gents, listen... Um, a lot to get to uh, today with our guests, but before we do that, the chance for us to chat about what's uh, what's going on in the world of sport in the last uh, couple of weeks has caught our eyes. Now, I'm not letting either of you take the first one. I'm going to take the first one and then just throw it over to the two of you. Novak Djokovic. I mean, what an absolute cluster, whatever, of the highest order this is. Now, you know, to me, I look at what's happened here and I am convinced if he hadn't tweeted that rather self-indulgent Instagram picture of him standing on a private airfield somewhere with his tennis bag saying, ready to go to Australia, everybody, let's go. If he hadn't tweeted that out and he just quietly got on a plane and shown up in Australia, this would not have happened. None of us. He would have got in, it would all have been brushed under the carpet and there would have been no need for this. But having sat and watched it play out, what the hell do you make of it, Giles? Oh, where to start? Um I mean, people take their view on on vaccination and anti-vaccination, and and I suppose I believe in in, in freedom of speech, um, but I'm probably letting my own guard <laughs> slip a little bit of what I think. But particularly, in but, the you're, world but Charles, of- you're, you're, you've you've historically been pro-vax because you've always been a little prick. <laughs> yeah, you're going to say that for me. Dude, I was going you know, to <laughs> Pfizer has saved my ass on so many occasions in my life. <laughs> so, um, so going back to, to, to Novak, but 
in, in the world of big business, big sport, big money, all the rest of it, it's very clear that the world has to spin on a, on a, on a process, and the process of of, uh, of anti-vaccination doesn't help. But then the whole litany, and it's still playing out, and by the time this show goes out, I suspect this story will have unfurled a little bit further. I mean, God help us. Tennis looks bad. He looks bad. Um, the government of Australia looked clumsy. Um, I can't imagine. I was asked the other day, or yesterday actually, by the BBC, what, what I thought sponsors would make of all of this. And I think that will be coming too, because sponsors want to be liked. I'm not sure Novak is uh, greatly liked outside Serbia right now. I may be wrong. Um, and I suspect that he may be finding one or two of his contracts getting wobbly as well. So watch this one. I mean, what a banger for us in 22 to have this story to start us out opining on the world of sport. This is the this is the story that will never stop giving. Right, what you, what's your take on it? Because I, I, I dare say it'll be slightly different to most of us. <laughs> Let, let, let me guess. You you think there's, there's some Italian connection here. Come on. What is it? No, 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 no. Um, I had a couple of people say that they were very sorry that you and I didn't get into that COVID argument we were going to get into um, the last show. Because Who said like, it would be an argument? Well, that was my point. They said it would have been a very interesting discussion. Um, I, I don't think this is about COVID not, uh, one way or the other. Uh, um, I think this is about Djokovic and um, the, the phrase tone deaf. I think, and we've mentioned this, I think, a couple of years ago, uh, him and his family have always, always been this way. And and, and it, it was an attitude and a way of being that was waiting for something big to trip him up. And he just didn't have the EQ to see that this was really bad. And it wasn't just the first thing you see about posting the Twitter thing. It's going into the, the hotel and then getting caught up and seeming like, you know, he's different from those poor people that have been in there for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, it's, it, uh, so that would be my, my, my comment. Um, this was always going to happen, wasn't it? And it just happened now, Grant. It's interesting, Roger. I, I, I'm not sure i agree with 100 percent. although look, i've i've been baffled for a long time as to why such a supreme athlete as djokovic is is disliked quite as much as he is and a lot of it i put down to the fact that he's in danger of stripping records from federer who everybody loves right and so there's that there's that he's the anti-federer scientist but yeah you know, look you you cannot help but marvel at his talent um there's all kinds of rumors floating around about performance enhancing stuff and god knows what but that's never come to light but i just you know i just look at this as unfortunately a, a, a prime opportunity of a sportsman becoming a pawn in a game of politics at a time when the state of politics everywhere in the world is utterly abject and every leader in the world is on the back foot because of how they've handled the pandemic because no one's handled it well or, or effectively to this rate we're at that point where it seems like the only real solution at this point is to just let COVID rip because even if it's just for the fact that they can't get enough staff into the hospital, so they're going to have to say that one way or the other, we're at a turning point. And, you know, of all the governments, uh, the federal governments in the world, Australia probably has become one of the more, as you say, polarising uh, group of people. And within Australia, the Victorian government have become really a laughingstock worldwide for many, many reasons. You know, Melbourne was the most locked down city in the world with 200 and 
61 days lockdown, I think, um, which is extraordinary. So, you know, to, to, to stand there and place yourself in the crosshairs as a political football that could actually um, gain brownie points with all sorts of voters, depending on the outcome, was such a ridiculously stupid thing to do. Uh, so to see him put himself up as a political football and then to see the Aussie state and federal politicians pick him up and drop him and fumble him and kick him to the other side and then someone else come along and pick him up. I mean, it's just a clown show, the whole thing. And I, I dare say the one good thing that's come with this, Rog, potentially, talking to your point, is the amount of focus that's been put on these detention hotels yeah. in Victoria. Yeah. You know, it, it's we, we hadn't, we'd read about them, we'd heard about them, we hadn't seen any of them until now when there's thousands of people camped outside one, none of them wearing masks, I might add, um, waiting to get a glimpse of, of Novak. And, you know, I think the conditions are, are coming into focus now. And I say this as someone who in two weeks is getting on a plane to Sydney to go and see my daughter for the first time in two years, hopefully. So, um Careful what you t- careful what you tweet. Then I would. No, no, exactly. If if, if you don't hear from me uh, again for a while, you'll you'll know you'll know what's happened. But it's um it's just an extraordinary story, and I think you're right, Charles. I don't think this is done by a long not, way. Not at all. You know, like you think that if he actually gets on court and plays, and uh, yeah. you think he's going to have any support. You know, I honestly believe... Well, Roger, that'll be interesting. Actually, that will be interesting, right? No, purely. I, I totally get your point, but. In Melbourne, of all places, right? It could go either way because they've been locked down for so long. No, no, here's, and I don't know, right? The way I think it, they've been locked down for so long that there have been enormous marches in Melbourne. People, you know, I've got a lot of friends in Melbourne and without exception, they're all sick to the back teeth of this stuff now. They've had enough. They've absolutely had enough. And these are are smart, educated, thoughtful people, right? They've just had it. They're, They're sick of it. And so there is a chance that he's seen as some kind of hero who's actually forced this issue out into the open. But I say if I was handicapping it, I think you're right. He will be the elite exception to the rule and will get hosed on the court, which would be an interesting thing to watch, I suspect. But, Rog, answer me this. What would you think if he went on and won the Australian Open, of him as as a man, as a competitor, as a champion, if he went on to win the Australian Open, what would you think? Nothing different than I've thought for his whole career. <laughs> you know, like there, there's there's some people that you admire in sport that you have completely no passion about whatsoever. Ivan Lendl was another one. You know, and I'm sure many come to mind. Uh, we said when uh, he saved those two match points in Wimbledon from Federer and he went on to win the game that I, I, I remember saying that was me checked out of tennis. Um, I, I, I don't like the guy. Um, I, I definitely don't like his family and um, I'm just happy that the trap that he was inevitably going to fall into, he fell into so publicly at this time. I've, I'm actually quite pleased. Giles. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, d- I must say when his dad started banging on about Jesus Christ and crucifixion, I thought that was probably taking it um, a little bit far, but they've always taken it far. I think, it, I mean, it is fascinating, isn't it, uh, it, that we've lived in this era for the last nearly 20 years of the greatest three, three and a half tennis players, perhaps of the modern era. I don't put Andy Murray quite in that bracket, but 
but but in any other era, Andy probably would have won six. But you've got you know three of them at twenty or whatever it is. I mean, three quarters, seventy five percent of eighty percent of Grand Slam finals won by the, those three guys. It is truly astonishing, and yet Novak has really really suffered um, from being a bit of a pillock. And I think it's right. He's it's an EQ thing. I've got a couple of friends who are. Um, former players in in the world of tennis and he is not popular he genuinely is popular in the way that Nadal and Federer aren't quite the bosom buddies that Nike would have us believe in the same way the Roger Tiger uh, love in all those years ago was a little bit orchestrated but there is a genuine amount of respect and and you will I suspect see a bit like the big three in golf that you will see um, Federer and Nadal in their dotage continuing to dominate the game as they become more in, involved in the sport from 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 outside the the lines of the court. You will not see that with with Djokovic. He will be, if anything, he will do the rebel tour. He'll be the guy that will poke. The, the, he, he'll just coax the wrong thing. Um, he's a pain in the ass in my view. Always has been, but I do think. I think I'm going to throw it out there. I think he is the greatest of them all. Not in grace in Federer's style, not in the kind of pirate captain thing that I like with Nadal, the kind of bandana and all the rest of it, but for pure talent and um, stickability and physicality, Djokovic is You can stick it up his arse. <laughs> 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 nicely, nicely, nicely summed up there, Rog. Well done. What, uh, what else? Before we bring our guest in, what else? What else has caught your eye, Giles? Anything on your radar? Well, I'm just intrigued. Um, it's sort of in an in and on the radar from time to time, but it's about to go nuclear. Which, you've, well, I hope not. But is the Olympics? We've got the Winter Olympics coming in China against this extraordinary political backdrop. Um, that, it, that, that is happening. Owen Slot of the Times wrote a fabulous article uh, the other day about him getting ready to, to jump on a plane to go to Beijing and that they'll be having burner phones and everything is being monitored. You know, this is big state. Um, big state is um, all over uh, sport, but particularly in China. And once again, the Winter Olympics that no one else wanted really, um, the greatest show on earth, Ish, um, the IOC looks very, very weak, and I, I'm fascinated to see. I think we're going to have a whole heap of stuff to chat about in the next six weeks. Yeah, um, what I saw uh, the last couple of weeks, obviously, uh, one of the big um, poster childs of the sports industry, the athletic, um, the subscription model, uh, long form journalism, uh, finally sold to the New York Times at a, a, a mind-blowing valuation, less than they hoped, I think $5.50 instead of $7.50, but there is so much for the sports industry to take out of that. First of all, the valuation per subscriber, um, if somebody uh, looked at that and compared it to the valuation per fan of any football club in the world, you will see how much football has got in terms of upside uh, in terms of valuation, and that's why so much of the, the the smart finance boys and girls are looking at it. Because if you compare what it was, was it four hundred and fifty uh, a user to to what uh, Man United's valued at over their so called billion fans? Um, it's just the, the the delta is enormous. Um, equally, I would like to think, and I do think that the Athletic got out just in time, um, almost last chopper out of uh, Saigon 
in terms of subs businesses. Subs businesses, I think the the, un, the under underlying wisdom now is that um, any business that is only uh, subs, as opposed to throwing in everything from betting to NFTs to fantasy to uh, e-commerce, uh, isn't sustainable. That that's the accepted wisdom. I think now, uh, very different from a year ago. Certainly different from two years ago. So I think the Athletic funded by our friend Deepin at, at Courtside. They were the seed investors. Um, they got a magnificent return. But I think, guys, they got out just in time. And wouldn't you say, Rog, that, I mean, of all of the suitors who could have been the purchaser, the New York Times, not only were they maybe the last chopper out of Saigon, but also the best possible chopper they could ever have dreamt Agreed. to get on yeah. board of anybody, i.e. A, a big international business, very credible, very global, a, a, an absolute powerhouse of the publishing uh, journalist world. They They got lucky, didn't they? Uh, yeah, uh, listen, you know, look what happened to the share price of the New York Times. It went down about 8%. So Mr. Market didn't like that. Um, and I understand why they have paid in a massive amount of money for it. So like in any M&A, you either have to cross-fertilize the top line or get a shitload of, of cost synergies out. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure there's massive crossover in the kind of people that... Um, follow the, the, the Athletic and, and the New York Times. But what was the most interesting thing, Giles, was that it's now very clear that Athletic is, is going to be a bookmaker. Exactly the same model as Barstool. Exactly the same. And, and you know, we need to face into this. In the moment where I think the Premier League this week are lobbying government to not ban um, betting uh, shirt sponsorships, um, we've said this a couple of times. There's this kind of strange dichotomy in in in, in sport where some people really think it's everything in a day in terms of business models, and and others are saying uh, no, you can't do that. Um, that's one to watch, and that's why I think this deal uh, has been so so important to look at this week. Rog, can we dig into that a bit. What is it? I mean, this is a kind of mores, a morality thing, almost on a, on a nationalistic level about what people believe on bookmakers versus not bookmakers within sport. A bit like tobacco, a bit like alcohol. What's your take on it? America, well, we, embra- we, we, America embraces it. We're trying to reduce. Well, the, I think in America in general, and, and I heard somebody talk about this. I think it was the founder of Fangio. Um, he was saying, and this is true, uh, America is a much more... Um, Darwinian society than Europe. Um, there is much less nanny state. There's much more caveat emptor, you know, like you get screwed, whose fault was it? You know, that kind of stuff. Um, whereas Europe, I think, has always had slightly more social outlook into looking after the weaker parts of society. Um, but there's the, also the fact that, that the US is very late to this party, right? Gambling has been illegal in most of the US. So they're, they're, suddenly it's like, kids at christmas right there's all you've got all these presents to unwrap and everyone's piling in so look the data's going to come through um at some point and at that point rog we'll see how little of a nanny state it is there will be all kinds of calls to regulate betting and we're just not there yet because it, the, the 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 damage it it will undoubtedly do has not been is not demonstrable just yet so yeah, we'll see. You know, i think, I right, think you're in a sweet spot you're right, Graham. But let's you know, let 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 me ask you because you're you're in this world very much so in your own business. Um, if the athletic had um, a per user valuation of let's call it for simplicity sake five hundred dollars per user, all the people listening to this podcast, most of us 
are on a one pound a month subscription from The Athletic. Think about that, right? So what, what's been the play here? Get so many people on on the introducer deal, um, uh, sell it, because <laughs> that's, that's part of the play. And then obviously, I don't know what you're going to do, Grant, but if it goes up a lot, I'm, I'm going to cancel it. I love no, it. I, I, I think it's great, but you're, you're right, Roger. You're, you're absolutely right. It's... Um... This so is 450, not first, 450 and I think is paid, neither. Yeah, they've, he, they've paid way over the odds for it. Way no, over no the doubt. odds. But look, New York Times odds. needed needed to make some kind of acquisition like this. They've they've they done did. what a lot of these companies do at the top of markets. They've rushed in to make a splashy purchase, and and those things tend to tend to mark the tops. Well, listen, chaps. Um, before we bring our guest on today, there's one other thing, Roger, I wanted to get in quickly before we do that, and that is... Um, Sounds ominous. No, no, no. This just shows you how much you and I differ. One of the Paul brothers, your your boxing idols, did you see the knockout punch of... Yeah, of course. Uh, some, some other nobody, of some Woody or Woodley, or I, I have no idea yeah, who he is. UFC right? fighter. Yeah, I've no, I've no idea who either of these people are. Right, I know it's one of the Pauls and someone called Woody who was not in Toy Story, <laughs> but, but oh my god, that's got to oh be one of the god. best punches I've seen thrown in yeah a couple of decades. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. No, it's a it great was punch. absolutely unbelievable. It's a great punch, uh, uh, but you know, the, the, as always with these things now, and, and again, one of the big themes in sport is it's the the memes before, it's the trash talk before, and certainly afterwards. So um, Jake Paul, uh, the the deliverer of the punch, went on to quite an amazing attack on um, Dana White of the UFC after it, calling him out, which went on for days, that, that dragged in our old friend, Akiza Bardarian, who is, uh, um, <laughs> who is Jake Paul's manager, uh, and was called um, a scumbag by Dana White. All of this, obviously, on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, so the punch, yes, an amazing highlight of um, January. But the trash talk afterwards in today's world, I know you guys hate this, was even better, Grant. Even better than the punch. Well, isn't that interesting, Roger? Because I am blissfully unaware of all that trash talk. I just, I didn't see it. I don't You're care not the about audience, it. man. No, 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 no. They've no, given absolutely. up on you. They've no, given uh, no, up on that, you. That may be the case, Rog, but, but you know, you, you would think in today's world that that coverage, if it was so epic, would somehow find its way into my Twitter feed, into something, right? Somewhere, somehow. But I, all I saw was the punch. And that was it. I've not been touched by that fight in any other way, which I have to say I'm delighted about. Well, I mean, let's take a serious point here because what was he saying, Jake Paul? He he went on to Dana White and basically came out with this this um, soft underbelly of the UFC, which is you don't pay your fighters enough. Um, that's the accusation. And he was basically saying, if you pay your fighters enough, I'll stop all this boxing thing forever. Um, I, I just want you to do the right thing, Dana. Dana, whatever you want to call him. Um, let's not forget the UFC is not a marginal sports property now. UFC is the cornerstone of endeavor, you know. And 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 for three or four days, I get that it was maybe in the the, the a different stream of Twitter than the new frequent most of the time, but it was bloody important, you know. The the profitability of UFC comes from not paying its fighters that much, and if they get called out enough. That's going to hurt the Endeavour share price. That's, you know, the dominoes that fall. 
and, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and you know it's it's fascinating if you just think about these things very very interesting well gents look we have um we have a wonderful guest joining us uh for what i'm sure will be a, an enormously enjoyable conversation so giles why don't you uh tee up our guest and let people know who we're about to have a chat with yeah thanks Charles. well we, we we wanted to start um 22 um with a, with a cracker and the fans and, and regular listeners um know that are you not entertained is about well us chatting about the magic of sport and and what it does for fans those moments of of triumph and and disaster and of priceless memories that that sport gives us that's what fans really love and i think in reality the magic of most sport particularly at a professional level is delivered by television and the extraordinary and wondrous production of, of those moments, whether it be live moments that we remember, whether it be highlights, montages, the great commentators that we think. TV production is an art form. And our guest this week, I think, is one of the greatest of these sports television artists. Graham Fry, who many of you outside the industry just won't know the name, um, is chairman of IMG Productions Worldwide. That's what he does now. But his career started in the 70s, and he really has done the lot and been at the, the tiller, at the helm um, of television, particularly as television and sports TV went into colour. Um, he started with BBC Radio, as so many do, as a cub reporter in 1972. He joined BBC Sport in 1981, and he worked with many of the greats, sort of uh, Richie Benno, Peter Allis, Des Lynham, Harry Carpenter, John Motson... Steve Ryder, for, for the British in this audience, these are the gods of, 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 of sport. And in 1989, he was headhunted by uh, BSB, which was such a landmark moment in the history of TV broadcasting and really is almost the precursor to so much about what we talk about on this show. And in 1991, I think, he, he joined TWI to head up uh, golf and what was the forerunner of the European tour, which was what has become IMG Productions, where he's stayed ever since. But that doesn't make him a golf guy. That makes him an every sport guy because IMG Television has become one of the biggest TV productions in the com companies in the world. And the litany of things that Graham has produced over the years is astonishing. The Open and many golf across the board, tennis, Premier League, World Cups, European Championships, snooker, Commonwealth Games, racing, Rugby World Cup, the IPL, Paralympics. It actually would be quicker to say what is he not produced over this extraordinary career. Happily for us, he's also got more war stories than anyone I know in the industry. And I, I think we could devote, well, probably a whole series on the Graham Fry Chronicles. We won't. But let's get him on and, and hear what he's got to say. Graham Fry, a very, very warm welcome to Are You Not Entertained? Hello there. I'm very pleased to be with you today. Graham, we want to we want to talk about the whole technology and where you see the future of, of, of TV um, a little bit later because sure. it's such a huge area. Technology is changing everything, as you've referenced, and some sports have caught on, some haven't, some will, etc. But let's just go back in time a little. Let's be time lords for a bit. And let's go back to 1972. You're 18 years old. You've left school and you get a job as, I think, a cub reporter for BBC Radio. 
I mean, you now talk about the job and, and we've got, we've run through at the top of the show the amazing events that you've um, been privileged enough, to, well, we've been privileged enough for you to produce on behalf of all of us, the viewing public. How did it all start? How did you get this Well, gig? it was very strange. I hated exams. I didn't want to go to university because I just didn't want to face any more exams, basically. I did not know what I wanted to do. I was quite interested in journalism. I got offered a job by the Barnet Press which is my local newspaper, but it came about three weeks before I'd taken my A-levels, so I couldn't take that. And in the end, Richard Baker, who was the leading newsreader of the day on the BBC, his son went to my school. I wrote to him and said, I'm very interested in working for the BBC. Is there any way you can help? And amazingly, you know, to his credit, he forwarded my letter and I got asked for an interview to be working in a division called News Information, in BBC Radio. It wasn't as a reporter, it was as a researcher, actually, uh, cutting and sticking newspapers and creating files on individuals, on subject matters. Everything that was in the papers was in a file somewhere, and we would do research for various reporters from The World at One or all the Radio 4 shows, the BBC Radio News. And I did that for a number of years and worked my way up through that. And... Look, it was a nice job. I was in the BBC. It was a very prestigious place to work, but I wanted something different. Deep down, I knew what it was and never thought I could get it. And this is a really bad story, and I actually hate myself for even realising I did this, but there was an advert came up for a job in BBC TV Sport. I didn't go for it because I was too frightened of being rejected. And I thought, you idiot, what a stupid thing to do. Uh, and it came up again about six months later, and I wasn't so stupid the second time around. I applied for it. I got a six-month attachment to BBC TV Sport working on Grandstand, which was a great, great thrill. Unfortunately, uh, at the end of that six months, they didn't have a job for me, so I had to go back to my department in news research. And six months later, I got invited back and stayed there for eight amazing years. And uh, they were amazing years. And I learned so, so much. I've got so many people to thank there for what I went on to do, working on Grandstand and Sports Night, as I did for a lot, a, a big part of that, you came across so many different sports, having to understand the televising of so many different sports. It stood me in such great stead. And the beauty about sports production, I'm sure it's the same in most businesses, but each production team is only as good as its weakest member. So you got a huge amount of help and advice and cajoling and encouragement and uh, I've got a lot to thank the BBC for that. And I was going to ask was the kind of going through the tutelage of BBC Radio and that news information and gathering and, and that I, I guess the disciplines of all of that that must have really held you in very good stead as you went on to senior positions within sports production? Mm, a little a little bit but honestly they were Giles they were so different from one another I mean one was very much researching and the other one was doing, basically. You had to go in and produce. I was a junior assistant producer, but I still ended up producing the highlights for the Ashes series in 1981, the Botham and Willis Ashes, the Headingley match. You know, and that is a totally different skill set to working as a researcher in BBC Radio. But I suppose I had the confidence of the first six months in in uh, TV sport that, that held me in the in the most stead. And when I went back, I felt I fitted in. And um, it was a great, great place to work and still is, by the way. 
We have a lot of listeners and some of them purport to be in the sports industry, probably some um, are casual listeners. And I've been involved in for 30 years. And it's a question I've always never quite had the courage to ask you, um, but I probably should know the answer. But why don't you, as the, the grandmaster, what exactly does a TV sports producer do? Well, if you one of you could uh, tell me, that would be a really good start. <laughs> but uh, basically... A producer's role on the live is very much around the live event itself and you're producing the event. So, Giles, I know you're pretty familiar with golf, but I probably wouldn't get too much involved in the tournament until the week before the tournament started. Very much down to the director to plan the camera positions, to recce the course, hugely important to recce the course with all the undulations. But I'd turn up probably on a Tuesday of an event. I'd meet up with the... Uh, tournament director we work out who the best groupings were to hit our tv slots and then it'd be very much down to the day Uh, and the role of the producer in golf for example is to basically call every single shot that gets played work out which shots you want to take live which shots you want to have recorded and you'll probably be surprised to hear that that there are almost as many shots recorded in golf as there are shown live as because the leaders often are in two different places hitting balls at the same time and it's calling those shots and it's it's quite tricky you're very much reliant on getting the pace right you're reliant on the right people being in the right place at the right time and of course that doesn't always happen so that is a skill so producing live sport and live football is the same it's making sure the flow is right the tone is right the content is right when to take replays when not to take replays but very, very different from, say, producing a documentary where you may be in a planning phase for three or four months before you actually go and film anything. Yeah. So the live stuff is like it's a combination of being a conductor of an orchestra and a plate spinner. And you've got to decide who to yeah. bring in at the right time, but there's going to be highs and lows. So presumably, you, you, you I mean, I've been in some of the scanner trucks that, that you guys have had and just trying to keep track of 12, 15 cameras, depending on what the event is. I mean, I don't even know how you guys do it. For those who've never had the privilege of of seeing inside production, it is one of the great... Yeah, I mean, if you went into the uh, truck for the Open Championship with 101 cameras I think we had uh, a couple of years back, it it is difficult. As a producer, I obviously had to keep an eye on everything, but I used to follow the three or four radio cameras that went around with the main groups to work out roughly the right time to go to a shot because if the cameraman wasn't ready clearly I couldn't go to it and he would be ready for the shot so it was a question of of just looking and making sure you get the right player at the right time and when you couldn't get the right player you had to make sure he was being recorded because honestly it's so easy or it used to be really easy to miss a key golf shot you know and many an occasion I say okay I'm going to go live to Montgomery on the 14th could you cover Woosnam on the 12th? And Montgomery would go up to his ball and walk away at the last minute. So I think, okay, do I stick with Montgomery or do I go to Woosnam? So I go to Woosnam. He then has to record Montgomery. And so it's this toing and froing between you and what we call the submix operation, which is effectively you're directing the same cameras, but you're directing all the golf that isn't being covered live. And it's a question of spinning those shots in, in the right order, at the right time. And it it can get complicated, especially <laughs> if there are lots of golfers in contention. I mean, it used to be a real nightmare of mine uh, producing golf. 
uh, in the days when I started, there was only three holes scoring. So they only put the, they only inputted the scores after three holes, apart from the main featured groups. But it was when somebody from outside of those featured groups suddenly went birdie, birdie, birdie on <laughs> 13, 14 and 15. And you realised he was only one off the lead going on to the 16th tee and you didn't have a camera there because he started at the 10th hole and was finishing on the 9th. And you scramble one of your radio cameras, which means you lose all the coverage of the three guys you wanted to cover. And it's it's just being on top of it sort of every minute of every minute of the day. You're on the air for five hours at a time. And it's a uh, it's concentration, 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 really. Graham, let me ask you, because you know, as as golf has developed as a as a sport and as a particularly as a TV sport, you know, the way that you and your fellow producers around the world have advanced the coverage of golf is such now that honestly i would much prefer to watch golf on tv than go to the tournament you know you, you've literally made it better to stay at home and watch it because you can particularly someone like the Ryder cup well and i you know you can sense the atmosphere on the tv but i, I had a chance to go to the Ryder cup and i couldn't have made it anyway but i was umming and ahhing thinking do i really want to go um because i i know the coverage is that much better on tv is that problematic or is that unequivocally a good thing no it's it's a good thing in some respects i mean it's obviously great to go to a major sporting event and see it live but you go to the Ryder cup not expecting to see all the major moments you go for the experience and you may well want to follow a group or you may want to stick on a green for a couple of hours and watch everybody come through clearly in in the tv world technology has moved on considerably and so now it's a lot easier to record golf shots in fact you can actually start to air a golf shot before the players actually completed the shot the balls actually landed on the green it's it didn't used to be like that in my day should i say <laughs> but hmm. it's a lot easier and you've got high high motion cameras you've got green you've got uh, cameras in bunkers you've got more cameras following the golfer we record every single shot at the open championship so we never in theory, miss anything. So it has become in some respects simpler these days, but covering golf on 100 cameras is never, I'm afraid, going to be that no, simple. No, but but the experience for the viewer is, I mean, it's just, it's extraordinary now. It's it's just, it's such an immersive thing to watch now. If you're, if you're a golf fan, it's fantastic. Yes, and of course, a lot of the commentators these days are ex-professionals or in some cases still current professionals. So you've got great insight. And so golf is one sport, I think, that has moved on quite a bit. Uh, cricket, too, is another one. I, I dabbled in cricket in the early 90s. Um, I went to the West Indies for three or four tours. Uh, but that's moved on massively with all the various technologies like Hotspot mm. and the DRS and uh, the Spin Vision camera that was actually uh, our director, Simon Wheeler, invented that back in 1991, I think. But uh, cricket's moved on a lot as well. Some sports haven't moved on quite as much because it's actually quite difficult, I think, to move some sports forward. I mean, tennis, in terms of the covering of a tennis match, is pretty similar now to what it was many years ago. What you've got now, of course, you've got uh, cameras and nets and you've got you've got Hawkeye um, and you've got you've got much, much better graphics than you ever had when I was producing tennis way back when. Graham, um, you talked there about working in, in moments that most people would consider iconic moments in the soundtrack of their lives, you know, uh, both of them, uh, and we'll get on to a lot of other ones as well. How do you manage to 
find yourself in that moment, perhaps realizing that you're responsible for delivering that soundtrack to 60 million people in the UK or even wider. How do you stay so calm when you would be the first person that wants to, you know, jump up and down when Willis knocks the middle stump out? How do, how do you manage to keep so professional? Well, I did jump up and down when Willis knocked the middle stump out. But the, <laughs> the answer is I had to get a half an hour of TV on with one other assistant producer, a good friend of mine called Charles Borchin. We actually produced that series together. And we had a certain time frame to get that that on the air. And so, in a way, the result of the match wasn't as important as working out what shots you need to put into the highlights to get it done. You just had to get the job done. I mean, we were quite calm because I think we had it pretty much in hand, but we had some harem scaring moments on that. And I've had certainly many, many scary moments throughout my TV career, some really scary ones where you think this is all going to go horribly, horribly wrong. And on one or two occasions, of course, it did. But if you're not calm, certainly when you get into more senior positions, if you're not calm, it undermines the whole production operation, to be honest with you. You have to be calm at all times. And by and large, I had quite a loud voice in galleries, so I was told, uh, quite excitable. But deep down, I was pretty calm most of the time. But I, if, I, if I remember well, you, you were somebody who had an enormous amount of gravitas in that room, you know, had a loud and, voice, and, and, Roger. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was more than. It was more than that. It was more than that. I, I think people felt a sense of safety when they knew you were around. And secondly, you know, when it all starts kicking off, you know, you could probably feel all the eyes on you, Graham. You yeah. know, because it's like he'll he'll get us out of this. Yeah. Tell us, tell us a little bit about you know. The ones that you did get them get, get out, you know, pull it out at the end of the day. Not so interesting the ones that didn't go well because that's not our style here. But tell us the ones that nearly didn't uh, make make it. Blimey! I mean, I can talk of numerous occasions in snooker which people will think is quite a slow sport, but the nature of two table snooker is that you can only be live on one match, of course, and um, sometimes you're showing recordings of frames and have to make a decision as to whether to keep on showing a frame recorded or to go live, running the risk that if you go live and it finishes, you've got 20 minutes of airtime unfilled. And if you stay recorded, you don't get the match completed. So there were some really delicate decisions there to be made, and they happened maybe once a day, maybe once every two or three days. Some very, very tricky ones there. I've had some moments in football, of course, when you're putting in replays. Even today, it's much, much harder than probably people realise working out when to put in replays and when not to. You want to see an incident as soon as you possibly can, but sometimes it's just not possible. And you can be brave. And of course, when you're brave and it works, nobody thinks twice. And if you're brave and it doesn't work, it's a bit of a disaster. I went down as the producer who missed one of the greatest golf shots of all time in Crom Montana when Severi Ballesteros, he hit his drive, I think, about 60 yards off the green. He was about four foot from a six-foot wall. And he managed to get under that ball, get it over the wall and back onto the fairway, and we never saw the shot because I had two cameras down there. Neither of them worked. They were so far off the course that neither of them could get a signal back. We missed that shot. He went onto the fairway, played his third shot and hold it and went on the next round. I, th I think he might have won the tournament or come second. But no, the, 
there've been a number of close shaves. Let's put it that way, Roger. I don't think there've been too many what I call out and out disasters. I'm very happy to talk about one or two of them because some of the disasters I don't claim to this day were my fault. Others may well beg to disagree. Let's hear, but, uh, let's hear then if you're putting it on the table. We won't. Yeah, I'll put, I'll, I'll put one on the table with you. And actually, it's my. My sparring partner, Charles Balchin, once again, we were asked to do the highlight for match of the day of the Charity Shield in 1985 between Everton and Manchester United. It was pretty straightforward. The game, I think, was played in mid-afternoon. I think it was a three o'clock kickoff at Wembley. We were on the air quite late that night. The idea was that I produced the edit of the first half. Charlie would produce the edit of the second half. We stitched the two together and... The program's done. The professional way of doing it is you edit your first half, you then go and review the entire edit of your half to make sure that everything's fine. Charlie would go and do the same. You then stitch on his half, you make sure the stitch worked and everything was fine. And you'd either transmit it from the suite that you were in, or on this occasion, we handed it to the BBC transmission suite because we finished about three hours before the airtime. And we went home. Sports production people weren't allowed into BBC transmission suites. That was that was an area reserved purely for quality BBC engineering staff. So I went home and all was fine until I got a phone call at 8.30 the following morning from the executive producer of football. What happened, Graham? I said, um, no, it's fine. It was fine. He said, I can assure you it wasn't fine. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> what went wrong? He said, well... Why was there only one goal? <laughs> the, the game was 2-0. I said, there were two goals. He said, I can assure you there was only one goal. I said, no, I can promise you there were two because we reviewed our own halves each and then we went back and watched the game and both the goals were there. I can tell you now there was only one goal. So I thought, what the hell has happened here? And, you know, I was shaking a bit because, you know, this was the executive producer of football. It was quite an important match at, at the time. And I called up and said, what's happened? And they said, oh, well, didn't anybody call you? And I said, no, nobody's called me. He said, well, unfortunately, the tape snapped in the transmission suite and the engineer just put his scissors into the tape to cut it and pull out the bit that was graunched and stitched it back together again. And the bit that he pulled out was the second goal. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't believe it, could you? <laughs> but I took a lot of stick for that, a lot of stick for that, although there was nothing much I could do. When I left a black 30-second hole in one of my Ski Sunday shows, I held my hands up. That was entirely <laughs> down to me. <laughs> Greg, Roger rather beautifully put, um, you know, the, the world of sport, these are the soundtracks of, of people's lives, like Botham's Ashes or whatever it may be question I've been dying to ask you is that you've you've worked with some of the greats and I think for many people when they think about um, sport on television it's always the voices that go with it with the commentators the great commentators yeah. of all of the sports in in I mean I know not to single anybody out particularly but who were the greatest for you that you felt just had the the tones that just captured sport in a way that was a privilege for you to then put the television pictures to create the whole vision well, I don't know really where to start because, uh, you know, at, at the time in the 80s when I was in BBC Sport, they had all the major sporting events and most of the great commentators. I mean, Harry Carpenter was a joy to work with. I worked with him in boxing and in golf. You couldn't meet a, a greater professional than him. 
um, you know, live links, 45 seconds, never a fluff, first time round. David Vine was exactly the same. Desmond Lynham, you know, Steve Ryder, absolute professionals, very different in their own ways. Steve was quite a straight presenter. Des had a little twinkle in his eye. I shall never forget a line. I wasn't producing the show, but he was uh, presenting an Olympic show and we'd come off of Olympic event. He said, well, going down to the pub for a pint is an Olympic event, but synchronised swimming is. Here's Tony Gubber. <laughs> it was just brilliantly delivered and very funny, but Des was a wonderful guy to work with, great sense of humour. From a commentary perspective, obviously Peter Alice, David Coleman, amazing, quite a scary man to work with, I found, at least when I started working in athletics. But he had real pre he had real presence. Scary and, in what way? Scary in what way? What makes uh, he, he scary was quite, he, he would but he knew what he wanted and he would always get it. Uh, he'd make you know what he wanted. And um, I'll tell you a story about uh, an event. I went to Italy with uh, David Coleman. I was meant to meet him at the airport. And uh, I had the car slightly in the wrong place. It was probably only 20 yards in the wrong place, but it was in the wrong place. And he wasn't very happy about that. So rather nervously, I set off in Milan to the hotel. And because I think I was slightly on edge, managed to drive down a one-way street the wrong way. <laughs> And this street seemed to go on a long, long, long way. And I kept on going down this road and David about halfway down. And I'm afraid I can't give you the full sense. He said, Graham Fry, you are a explicit. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, this is going to be an absolute nightmare. And I drove one mile down that road with him shouting at me and cursing me. And this and that. got him to the hotel. He then said, I want to go for a run. So I'd say, uh, okay, uh, leave it with me. I'll go and find out where you can run. So I went to the reception. I found out a nice little wooded area where he could go have a run. And I waited around. He came back. I said, how was that, David? All right? I got lost. <laughs> and so here was I on edge again, thinking this is going to be a nightmare trip. And there was one way I could get myself out of jail, and that was to find him a commentary position exactly on the line of the, the finish line of the 100 metres. If he was bang on the line and he could see the line, then all was good again. And But he was a great professional and a brilliant commentator. I mean, I think we all recognise he had real presence. Yeah. Didn't he? When yeah, he'd say, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, he would just say, he, there'd be a long pause and he'd say, the world 100 meters final. That's all he said, <laughs> and it had real presence. That's so true, Graham. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Graham. I have to, I have to say the uh, when, when you talk about Des Lynham, I, I don't know if you were producing this show. The, the the best line I ever heard from him, which to this day I can still see it exactly in my head, was when he was talking. I think it was grandstand he was doing, and they had the world snooker final on later on in the program, and it was Stephen Hendry against John Higgins, I think, or maybe it was a semi-final. And he was doing his you know, very stylish, very laid-back interview about uh, introduction of what was coming up. And he said, and of course, later on this afternoon, we'll be going to Sheffield for the World Snooker Final between Stephen Henry and John Higgins. So just you wait, Henry Higgins, just you wait. <laughs> and that, to me, was the, the most fantastic introduction no, he, I've ever heard. To this no. day, it must, be, it must be 30 years ago. Yeah, no, he's he, he's terrific to work with. I can tell you, I, I was the producer of Wimbledon Match of the Day for three or four years uh, with Desmond Lynham and Jerry Williams, if you remember Jerry, who was the terrorist, yeah, tennis course. correspondent for the Daily yeah. Mail, then became 
BBC tennis correspondent. We had a lot of fun on that show. And I remember the World Cup third place playoff match. And I can't think it was who the second team was, but I know one of them was Belgium. And they were playing that day, but there was no slot for the match on the BBC schedule. So I was told by John Rowlandson, I think was running Wimbledon at the time, that I had to put 15 or 20 minutes of the match into the Wimbledon match of the day show. So Des came up to me and said, I understand we've got to put a bit of football in tonight. And I said, yeah, that's fine. He said, why don't we wind up Jerry Williams? Because he never watches anything. He'll just sit back in the chair. I said, why don't we ask him about... George Grun, who was the centre-half for Belgium, he said, said, and ask him what he thinks about the game he's played. And I said, fine, that sounds like a a fun thing to do. (laughs) So when when I thought about it, I thought, actually, this is really unfair on Jerry. So I called up Barry Davis and I said, Barry, could you give me everything that you know about George Grun? Where he plays, you know, has he scored, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, I had all these facts on George Groom, which I gave to Jerry Williams. So we got to the end of the game and uh, Des said, well, there we go. That's the third and fourth place match. Jerry, um, I thought it was quite interesting, George Groom, the way the match he played tonight. Uh, what, did you, what do you think of his performance? He said, well, he plays slightly out of position than he does for his club side. You know, he has scored three or four goals this season, actually. And we cut to Des and he's... Des's mouth was wide open. He was completely in disbelief. <laughs> Gary came back and said, what I want to know, Des, why did you think that Nico Klassen played on the right? And Des said, I think we're running out of time here. And I said to Des down the talkback, no, we've got a couple more minutes, uh, Des. Don't, don't worry about it. And they pulled away. <laughs> anyway, the show finished. And I remember the PA uh, and I walked out the truck and Des was walking down the steps from the studio. She turned to me and said, I don't think he's very happy at all. I said, I don't think that worked out the way he wanted it to work out. And he came down the steps and he said... That's the funniest thing I've ever I've ever been involved in in television. <laughs> Great sigh of relief, but it it was really it was really funny. But we had a lot of fun, but a lot of it, of course, was very serious too. Graham, you've um, got a lot of stories, and I hope we're going to hear more. There's one I you, you mentioned to me about Alec Ferguson and a machine gun, which I'm quite interested in. Yeah, the, the two aren't the two aren't connected, but I was <laughs> I was sent out. I was sent they could be. They very well could be. <laughs> The Mexico World Cup of 1986, I was asked to be the producer for the Scotland team. And the Scotland training camp was a long way outside Mexico City. And if ever you've been to Mexico City, the traffic was absolutely horrendous. It took us two hours to get there. We got there to do an interview with Alex Ferguson and the Scottish FA, Roger, wouldn't allow, uh, us in, not, wouldn't allow us yeah. into the hotel. <laughs> Doesn't surprise me. Yeah. They wouldn't allow us into the hotel. I said, look, we've driven nearly three hours to get here. It's for BBC TV. We've come to do a short interview with Alex Ferguson. He said, I'm sorry, you're not coming in here. We got a message about half an hour later that Alex Ferguson was walking down the drive of the hotel to do the interview with us outside the hotel. It was a long drive. It must have been a one-mile drive to the hotel where the Scotland team was staying. And he came out and took the trouble to come and do that interview for us outside. And from that moment on, I thought, what a great man. Of course, so it proved. So, so it that was proved. that was one story. Uh, the second story, um, the machine gun story, is... Um, there was huge, huge competition between BBC and ITV at all the all the events where BBC and ITV would go head to head, especially as to who would get the key interviews first. 
So it was paramount that of everything I did, I had to get the first interview with a Scotland player at the end of the game. I was behind one of the goals for Scotland against Uruguay. You'll probably, you'll probably yeah. remember it, Roger. Yeah. And yeah. I worked my way around at the end of the game and I wasn't allowed to go down the near touchline to the, to the tunnel because I didn't have the right accreditation badge. So I said, no, this is for BBC TV. I'm sure it's right. It's fine. And I started walking and I had a machine gun put in to my back. <laughs> I said, okay, uh, I'll stay put. Uh, and I walked back behind the goal and I phoned up the guys and said, I haven't been allowed to go to the tunnel because I've got the wrong accreditation. I got a mother and father of a rollicking when I got back. You know what they said to me? He would huh. never he would never have shot. <laughs> That's what they said to me. <laughs> yeah. So I was sent back from uh, the World Cup in Mexico early to produce Wimbledon. It's probably a relief that that's what they asked me to do, frankly. Graham, talking about Scotland and um, Scottish people, um, but there's one particular uh, young Scot that you work with, I think, in around about 91 um, to, to help you uh, with Italian football, who I think you've sort of maybe unearthed his his natural talent for, for podcasting, certainly. Tell, tell us how you came across the young Roger Mitchell. Well, um, first of all, I didn't realise he had any talent at the time, but um, <laughs> BSB had the rights to Italian football. So BSB, this was the the first satellite broadcaster, pre-Sky the Squarials, that ultimately didn't work. And we had a brilliant punditry team. We had, I think, Ray Wilkins, lovely man, Graham Soonis and Trevor Francis. But I needed somebody in Italy. I needed somebody basically who knew a lot about TV, who was prepared to go up and down the country every weekend to be at the games that we were going to televise, who knew a lot about football and who could speak good English. Well, the person I found didn't know anything about TV, didn't speak very good English, but was prepared to work hard and knew a lot about Italian football. And that was Roger Mitchell. <laughs> and actually, and this is this is true, uh, several, several years later, I saw that Roger Mitchell had been made the chief executive of the SPL. I remember turning somebody in the office and said, I worked with Roger Mitchell once on Italian football and never thought anything more of it. <laughs> <laughs> My God, it's him! <laughs> no, Roger, uh, you, you were a great ally in those early years. I can tell you. No, it was it was great. I was so interested to hear your story about writing to Richard Baker, um, and, and I think the hustle is such an important thing about getting ahead. I came back from Italy, my first stint in Italy, and you guys at BSB had just got the Italian rights. So I found the name of um, another friend of the industry, Andrew Croker, who was the head of sport. And I wrote to him and I said, um, look, I've got a career. I've got a job. I, I know quite a bit about Italian football. Why don't you just let me come in and I'll be your stats lad. I'll just do that. And, and, and anybody that knows Andrew Croker uh, will realise that he said, just said, sure, go and uh, turn up at this address and ask for Graham Fry." <laughs> And the, and the rest is history. <laughs> that's that's it. That's how it went. And I phoned Roger. I phoned Andrew Croker and said, "You know what? I hired him." I said, "What have you let me in for here?" But actually, what he let me in for was actually a very decent stats man, as it turned out. 
Yeah, those were great days. That's when Serie A was really, really the it top was. Well, of the it was. Well, it was pre Premier League, and it was probably yeah. the preeminent league in in Europe, right, at the time. By a by, by a mile, by a mile. But you know, it's it's bizarre that you know what was really just a hobby for me. It ended up with people thinking that it was going to be a career. And then, interestingly, Graham, you say I got the SPL job. One of the things that when they interviewed me, all the club chairmen, um, they said to me, Roger, um, we're worried that you're going to take this for profile and then you're going to go back into your your career in TV. I said, I don't have a career in TV. It was me. It was me being the tea boy for Graham Fry. <laughs> Roger, all this time I figured that you'd um, you'd just written to the Scottish Premier League and said, "Can I have the job?" And they gave it to you. I didn't realise it was an interview process. <laughs> That's not that far off the truth, <laughs> right? Graham, obviously you've been you've been fortunate enough to 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 be present at so many memorable uh, events, and, and as you know, Roger put so beautifully earlier on, and Giles also. For us sitting at home watching those, you don't have to be a fan of football to appreciate some of the great moments in football. You don't have to be a fan of tennis to appreciate, you know, some of these classic matches we've seen in recent years. What what are the kind of the events that you've been to, whether you were working there and as Roger asked earlier on, had to try and remain calm or you've just been there and happened to have been there as a fan. What what are the, the sporting events that have really left the biggest marks on you? Well, everybody in the sports TV industry knows I'm a massive, massive Tottenham fan. Oh, well, never mind. Uh, 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 yeah, it can't be. It can't be helped. But, but uh, in my very first week in the BBC Sport was, in fact, the week of the 1981 FA Cup final. Oh, okay. Spurs and Man City, and I couldn't go because BBC Sport said you need to work on grandstand. I was really disappointed, but I did get to the replay. Because it was a Thursday night. If you remember in those days, yeah. cup final grandstand would come on at about 11 in the morning and run until about 6 in the evening. It was a major, major production. The replay wasn't so big. They didn't have the airtime. They'd come on at 7 o'clock for an 8 o'clock kickoff or whatever time it was. And so that was a personal major milestone for me. I think one of the other ones was uh, I was producing cricket in the West Indies when Brian Lara scored his record 375. That was yeah. a major moment it was exciting to be there. It was extraordinary for the West Indies crowd. I felt very proud to be in the producer's chair that day. There was a pitch invasion, if you remember. And yeah, I mean, I've got many. I was at the 2012 Olympics for Usain Bolt's 200 metres as a fan with my family. Uh, the Ryder Cup in Paris, we were producing the Ryder Cup, but I've never known an atmosphere at a golf event like it. It was really special. Even at like seven o'clock in the morning, there were thousands and thousands of people around the first and second holes and the sun was coming up and you could barely see the ball because of, because of the low sun, but the atmosphere was something really, really special. And I think, I don't know whether to describe it as a major moment, but it's had a massive impression on me. And we produced the game. It was Spurs against Bolton in the FA Cup. I think it was the sixth round of the FA Cup. We were producing it for ESPN in the UK when Fabrice Mwamba collapsed on the pitch. And I was on the TV gantry and I semi saw it happen because I was actually following the ball. And and honestly, my legs completely went to jelly. It was a really scary 20 minutes or so. I remember the Tottenham physios and the Bolton physios ran onto the pitch. I think in the end, a doctor came out of the crowd. He was taken to hospital because there was a period of time after the game when we didn't actually know what had happened. 
And it was, I was really, really upset by it, actually. And I got home mm. that night and I poured myself a drink because I was not in great shape. I was really upset. I still didn't really know what had happened to him. I, I think maybe word had got around that he was still alive at the time. I then got a phone call from Spurs to say, I understand that you've taken a load of tapes away with you. Uh, we'd like to see those tapes because we want to know whether the Tottenham medical team reacted fast enough to the incident. And we need to reassure ourselves that we acted in the proper way. So about half 11, quarter 12, I had three people from Spurs came into my lounge. We watched on a VHS cassette angles of the incident of clearly haven't been shown, which is why I took the tapes away to be put into a safe that were never going to be seen again. And I don't believe I've ever been seen again. Mm -hmm. But to see how he recovered and to see the reaction that he got when he went back to White Hart Lane several months later, amazing. I've never met him. I'd love to meet him. But uh, of all the things that I've done, that left a massive impression on me. It was an iconic sports moment, but it was an iconic moment for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, talking about sports a little bit, um, Graham. Um, you are you going to take, like, take the Mickey now, Roger? Are you going to no, be serious? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm going to be serious because um, I, I, I think that Spurs have, in many ways, been the the English team that I've looked to the most. If I'm really honest, uh, mainly because of you know, obviously the the, the double side and and and. Um, you know, Dave Mackay and Blanche Flower and everything like that. Um, beautiful side. But more importantly, um, in my kind of like coming coming of age as a football fan, Glenn Hoddle, um, I, I'd love you to, to talk to me a little bit about what Hoddle was and how you saw him as a fan, but also as, you know, somebody that lit up sports production. Glenn Hoddle. Well, Glenn Hoddle... I wasn't I wasn't really producing football that much when Glenn Hall was around. I was uh, certainly as a fan, I was going to most of the games. He was an iconic player. I mean, I still am not entirely sure there's been a player quite like him. I'm not saying there's not been a player as good as him because there has. But he was a silky player, wasn't he, who did very unexpected things. I remember when he dummied the goalkeeper completely yeah. uh, you know, to score a goal and run with the ball from the halfway line. But he was a special, special player. And I think as a Spurs fan, while we had him, anything was possible. And of course, while he was at Spurs, we did actually win something. <laughs> we yeah. actually won two things. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what, what, do you th what do you think, Graham? You know, like you, you've had a lot of great players, you know, okay, not for a long time, but you had Gaza. Um, and, and you've had uh, a lot of great teams. And, and now, you know, coming back to sports content, we live in the world of the meme. And, and the meme that goes around these days is obviously Giorgio Chiellini. You know, this is the history of the Tottenham. Something missing. What, what is it you think is, is missing at your club? Um, and, I'm, and I'm saying that seriously. It's not uh, taking the mickey. Um, you know, what's, what's missing for, for Spurs to take the next step? It's a really good question. If if I knew the answer, I'd pass it on to somebody at Spurs because they don't know the answer either. It's something that we've been so close so often. It's it's almost, I don't know whether there's a, a mental barrier uh, around crossing that final line. I think we've been a bit unlucky on a couple of occasions. I'm sure there are lots of Arsenal and Chelsea fans out there laughing their heads off at this, <laughs> but to concede a goal to Liverpool in the Champions League final after 30 seconds to that penalty when... It arguably, it certainly hit his hand, but whether it was intentional, I don't know. 
we've just been maybe lacking in one or two key positions. I mean, since Hoddle, and obviously Christian Eriksen was was great, but we've been lacking in certain areas of the pitch and maybe relying on on certain individuals to do all the scoring for us. Certainly, latterly, that's been the case. I can't put my finger on it. I really can't. I mean, we've had some really good teams, some excellent players, some outstanding international players, yet we've never quite made it, have we? No. I don't, I, you know, I'm sorry not to be able to answer your question, but I just can't answer your question because I don't know the answer. Well, well here, here's the last one in, in this little segue here. Um, the, the archetypal winner, Antonio Conte, um, are you hoping that this is the moment or is he going to be like Mourinho and just be spat out? No, I'm hoping. Of course, I'm hoping it's the moment. His track record is amazing. He's clearly a strong disciplinarian. I'm sure some of the things he's seen, he hasn't liked a lot. Uh, the January transfer window will be a big thing for Spurs fans. I would imagine that he has money to spend, but I don't know, of course, but I would imagine so. Let's see how they go this time next season when he's had a transfer window in the summer as well and see whether he can turn us into a really, really top team again. I really hope so. But honestly, you know, I get so much pleasure. I've worked on all sports, every sport in my television career, and some of them, actually, you think, actually, I don't really want to watch much of it. I've seen so much of it. I'm not too sure I want to go and watch it as a fan but I will always go and watch football as a fan, no matter how many years of football I've been involved in. It has been an awful lot, especially with the Premier League since 1997. I will always go and watch football. And actually, I really enjoy going to watch matches that don't involve my team because I actually don't feel the pressure of the game. Uh, I'm not a very good watcher. I'm probably like a 16-year-old fan at, six, at 68. Uh, I do get quite excitable watching Tottenham play, that's for sure. <laughs> Graham, I'd like to, um, to, to turn our sights to, to golf. You've produced probably more um, golf tournaments than many people out there ever, I would imagine. And it's a great love of yours and how we first met. I, I wonder, when we talk about the characters uh, over your career, who are the great characters on the golf course or rather off the golf course, perhaps who you've, uh, you've come across, who you've enjoyed working with as golfers. Well, look, Seve was an iconic character. I wouldn't say I got to know him really, really well because you didn't get the chance to be with him that often. I mean, there were a number of players. There was a group, there was a group around Woosnam, Barry Lane, Richard Boxall, all those guys were great fun, <laughs> great to be great to be around, and the tour were terrific to work with because they were very accessible and they understood what TV want and they wanted and they worked really closely with TV too. It's a nice sport to work in, and of course, as a group, the golfers were an absolute delight to work with, real delight. Very accessible, understood what you were trying to do, understood that when we moved them to a certain tea time, they understood and appreciated the reason why. Montgomery could be a great guy one minute and not so easy the next. I remember a great story with Colin Montgomery. I think it was the King Hassan course in Morocco. I don't know if you ever went there, Giles, but um, I did, yeah. it was a course owned by the King and Monty was playing. And I was out actually walking around the course. It was the day before the tournaments had started for TV or it was the morning of, and we were coming on in the afternoon, and that, that might, might have been it. And I was on the first green, and Montgomery walked up to the green, and there were spectators sitting on the green because they'd never <laughs> seen golf before. Um, I'm afraid I can't 
tell you what he said to the spectators <laughs> on the green. <laughs> Suffice to say, they moved off the green, let's put it that way. <laughs> but what a great life for a guy to go to golf tournaments around Europe, and actually it's around the world now, working in amazing locations. I mean, you, we, we did a tournament for HSBC in Singapore, Great course, lovely environment. What a great place to be in March. (laughs) With all the top players in the world playing, producing golf for five hours a day. It didn't get much better than that. Good for you. Listen, Graham, let's um, kind of like uh, take the end of this um, podcast and talk about one of the great things that you've done is you've built Stockley Park. And for for people that don't know what the Premiership has become now globally – is because of what Graham has built at Stockley Park. We had um, reason to meet for something or another in the last two or three years, and I came to Stockley Park with um, Brian Philpotts, who um, used to be the commercial director of the Premiership in the days of uh, Richard Scudamore and and uh, the, the first half of Scudamore's term. And you were shown us around Stockley Park, which truly is an amazing place. And... I looked over to Brian at one point, Graham, and he was crying. Did Did you notice that? Really, I I've think... never thought Brian Philpatt had it within within him to cry. Well, that that's the thing. That's the thing. Brian is a hard, hard warrior, or has seen everything in a in, in all shapes and form. I think. I think what that represented was, you know, in the early days of 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 our, of our generation. You know, we were at the start of the journey of the professionalisation of sport. The Premiership w- was a thing that, that wasn't what it is today. And he was a big part of that. And I think when he went through you showing him Stockley Park and how everything was transmitted globally, and, and in many ways he felt that he was on the ground floor of that, rightly so, it, it, it was just emotional for him. The Premiership is one of Britain's great commercial success stories of the last 20 years, <laughs> that place that you built is kind of like cornerstone to that. Tell us a little bit about Stockley Park. Throw in some VAR stuff as well, okay. if you want. Okay. I mean, well, first and foremost, I think it's probably the teams and the players that have made the Premier League what it is, not Stockley Park. But uh, we put Stockley Park because of the demand of the overseas broadcasters. Actually, we had to move offices from Chiswick. We were growing the business, just generally speaking. Uh, But the Premier League was getting bigger and bigger. Almost every term, we'd be asked to produce more stuff. I think when I started, a lot of the games were covered on three separate cameras. And three years later, they were cut on three camera, four camera outside broadcast. And three years after that, it was six camera outside broadcast. And now we have every match is covered on... 10 cameras minimum, the Big Sky and BT Games and Amazon Games are covered on more. But of course, in our role as uh, the producer for the overseas market, we have to make programming around every one of the Premier League games. And it was drilled into us very early on that every game had to be treated as seriously as the other. And that's exactly what we've done. So we've needed to build facilities that can cope with, on one day in the season, 10 concurrent matches and that of course only happens on the very last day of the season but there are often seven or eight concurrent on boxing day less so concurrent of course three o'clock on saturdays now um, because the calendars change and of course during covid uh, it changed radically but we've built up a team of 160 180 people 
and counting of people who work solely on Premier League football in Stockley Park. And we have edit suites, we have production galleries, we have studios. Two studios will be dedicated from next season to the Premier League output for the, inter the international market alone. We have connectivity to all of the uh, Premier League grounds. We have what we call fibre lines into every ground, 24 lines in some cases, so we can cater for all the international broadcasters on site. And that is the main reason why it seemed to make so much sense to bring VAR to Stockley Park, because all the connectivity, all the camera angles were coming into our building. And they built, or we built for the PGMO, the, the game board, a VAR room dedicated to purely adjudicating major VAR incidents. And many a time I wanted to storm that room, I can tell you, <laughs> when penalties have been awarded against Spurs, but I've refrained. Um, but it's, look, it's uh, it's a great thing. It's I was very proud to have VAR in our building. It's, it's changed the game for good or for bad, whatever your opinion is. I think it's for good. And I think it's getting better all the time. And we'll still need refining, I'm sure, further. But it's a good thing for the game. And I'm very proud to have a sort of a major infrastructure of Premier League productions, you know, studios, galleries, edit suites, some great people, both in front and behind the camera. And alongside, we are also host broadcasting all of the Football League matches. So on a Saturday, we're producing 32 concurrent Football League matches for the Football League, which we distribute... Uh, to various outlets, of course, we don't do that. We don't uh, handle the matches covered currently by Sky, but everything else. So we have a big, big football presence on a Saturday. It's a buzzy place to be, and I actually, even on my days off, and this sounds pretty sad, even on my days off, I've gone into Stockley Park because it's just such a buzz to be watching football in a building like that. It's amazing, Graham. I must, I must, I must, I must ask you. Um, uh, this show uh, of ours is 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 brought to you, or it's brought to our listeners by Sports Digital, who are very much into sports presentation. Which is very apposite with everything that that you've done is you've lived through the tech evolution and revolution um, within the broadcast industry. You've seen graphics, we've seen things like talk about VAR, we've talked about Hawkeye, all of that stuff. Things got cooler and cooler, and it's important because as the young are looking to um, be attracted into sport, clearly technology plays a part. Where do you see all of this going? I mean, this may not be on your watch as, as you begin to um, unwind. Or you should do eventually. You've been at it for long enough. But I just wonder yes. where you see where you see technology. Where you, I mean, because one of the things I'd sort of want to interject myself here. We see OTT, we see new production companies coming in, but one of the things that makes sport so compelling is the sheer professionalism of the big guns producing sport properly that yeah. we've talked about over the last you know, hour or so. When you get cowboys or inexperienced, perhaps I can even use the word kids, producing sport, is it going to be the same? The, you know, the pitches may be the same, but is production going to be the same? There are clearly big changes in production, not least because I think the impact of the pandemic and arguably before the pandemic, that production budgets are coming under strain. But there is a definite move to producing sports events remotely. And that's for those who don't know, is bringing the cameras back to a central location and producing the event from that location. So we would bring sports events back to Stockley Park and actually 
produce the event that may be remotely, you know, 200 miles up the road or even overseas, we will produce those from Stockley Park. That will happen. There are going to be more and more opportunities. So from a sports production industry perspective, I think the outlook is quite promising. I think the big events will still be produced to a very high standard. There's a real desire amongst the broadcasters and amongst the production companies themselves to improve the quality. I'm sure technology will improve further. I think the when 5G comes along, there'll be the ability to bring back cameras over the internet and more and more remote productions will happen. I think there'll be certain events like the Ryder Cup, like really big football matches, like the Open Golf Championship that will be produced on site. I think if I have a concern, it's for the people who work in sports production. And there are two ways of looking at this. And I I had a pretty strong view about it. And I'm now being slightly swayed by an alternative view. And my view is that one of the great lures of working in sports production is the ability to go to the Ryder Cup in at the Paris National in in France and to go to World Cups and to go to big sporting events around the world, whether it's athletics or cricket or what have you. Producing it remotely from a central location takes away some of the glamour. And I'm just wondering whether it will it will dissuade some people from getting into sport production. The other the other view is that the world has changed and people are readdressing their work-life balance. And the one thing I would say, certainly about my life in sport production, it takes up a lot of your time and you're away from home an awful lot. I think a lot of people now may well want to think about staying more at home with their family and, and remote production will help that. Um, so I think the future's generally bright. I think there's going to be more sport to produce. As you say, OTT is definitely coming. A lot of people are going into it in a major way. OTT and golf, I think a lot of people watch feature groups. Effectively, that's a, a, a version of OTT. But FIFA are going to launch a, a big OTT channel, which you, you can basically tap into a wealth of football material around World Cups and FIFA-related events. Football clubs are doing the same. Uh, there's going to be more and more of that. I think there's going to be so much sports content out there. And I'll use the word content now as opposed to TV content because digital is definitely of massive of massive importance as we go forward. Uh, that the quality will be there for the big events. Whether there isn't great quality, there may be not been any coverage at all in previous years. So you will have the opportunity to see the sports you want to see and often when you want to see them going forward. So I think that's a positive thing. But I think the big, big events, the big sports will always be produced to a very, very high standard, a very high standard. Yeah, I think that's right, Graham. Um, you know, the, the long tail and how that gets covered you know, we've done some stuff together with the, the AI uh, cameras that um, I think they're getting better. Um, you guys, uh, well, more IMG Arena than you uh, have been using them. Um, I, I think for uh, watching bet, there, it's, it's certainly something that is going to change. So much is now getting done in the cloud and everything like that. Um, I just want to say, Graham, because I know that you're handing on the baton now to Barney Francis. Yep. Um couldn't get a better bloke. I'm sure that's a, that's been a great appointment for the company. That's for sure. Yeah, I'm not sure about better bloke. I don't know Barney, but I certainly <laughs> know you. And um, I just want to say thank you from um, from back in '91 as well. Um, I want to say thanks for this uh, 
so generous uh, gift of your time today. And um, it's just been a wonderful show. And I'd love to say, please keep in touch. And anything we can do uh, together will always be a delight for us. No, that's a real pleasure, Roger. And thank you. I'm just wondering, what would have happened if I'd have picked up the phone to Roger and said, actually, I've managed to find another bloke to do the stats for us on the Italian <laughs> League. Where would that have left Roger Mitchell, do you think? He'd have found another way. He'd another have found way. another way to the middle, Graham. Don't you worry. Absolutely. <laughs> Graham, thank you so much. No, look, it's been a thank lot you, of Graham. fun. I mean, uh, you know, I'm a very lucky guy, really. I mean, the, there aren't that many people who can go to work every day and genuinely say they really enjoy their work. Um, I, I, I did that for probably 40 years, and I think it's only in the last year, and I think you can probably guess the reasons why, it's become quite difficult. I think COVID has been really, really difficult for everybody. Of course, it's been for everybody. And we're just doing sports television production. We, we're we not at the coalface. We're not doing some of the amazing things the health service are doing. But from a sports production perspective, it has caused chaos uh, for us, for our company, and for all the work that we do. And it's um, it may have seen me off. I'm pretty I'm pretty exhausted from it all, and looking forward to a few days off. Uh, uh, that's for sure. Graham, listen, it's been it's been such a it's been such a pleasure. Um, it, it's been great. Well, I hope to get there's some good to, stuff to in there. I mean, I hope. Uh, oh, it's fascinating. It really is. And um, both both you, the, the stories of your past and your views of the future are, are just exactly what this show is all about. So thanks so much for sharing the, the, all that with us. And, and as Roger said, giving up some of your precious time, we really appreciate it. No, it's, it's a pleasure. No, it's a pleasure. Really enjoyed doing it. Actually, Graham, it's lovely to see you, and we'll we'll, we'll see you very soon. Okay, well for done. sure. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Thanks, Cheers. Graham. Bye. Bye. Ah, how marvellous was that? Yeah, yeah. Um, a bit emotional, actually, but, um, yeah, very, very nice. Very nice. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, 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 you know, it's what, what an amazing career and what an amazing time to have had a career like that. You know, the things that, that Graham's seen, the changes he's seen over the course of his kind of tenure there are probably the, the kind of the most condensed, rapid acceleration of technological change into, into his chosen world that we've ever seen, Rog. Yeah, uh, you know, I played down the thing about Stockley Park because that's just very much Graham. He is just a lovely guy. But yeah, you're right, Grant. He, If you think that sport has been financed by the, the media sector, principally, you know, Sky TV or pay TV or cable, whatever you want to call it, he he moved with the times to deliver that. You know, there's been two or, big, two or three big step changes in sports production. You know, one was certainly the arrival of Sky, uh, and and then you know going forward, I think Stockley Park is another one, and and he he's been right in the middle of that, and and um, he he leaves now, and you know that's why you know Giles and I wanted him on the show because it would be remiss for the sports industry not to to remember Graham and what he's done as he kind of goes into retirement now. But what I would also say with that, Rog, is that it was a point I, I sort of made a little bit earlier is that. When you hear the stories of him and and him of of his generation talking about how sport was produced and it was a combination of great commentators, great production, but also great humour, as we heard from the Des Lynham stories. And one of the things that I hope going forward as sport goes ever more into technology is the the sheer professionalism and the quality of... You take the BBC as a nursery of of creating great television... 
That's why the theatre is so magical. And I have my doubts that some of the younger production companies necessarily have the, skill, right. have the skill sets to paint the I picture. Think they, I think they have the skill set, Giles, but I think you're right because now the quality production isn't important as having the meme in, in, in the right immediate moment. So I think the trade-off of getting absolutely perfect, J. R. Graham saying, you know, visiting a course and just looking at all the undulations, I, I, I think that will be sacrificed for the immediacy of post-moment uh, memes and and um, cheaper cheaper productions that ultimately will get, uh, I hate to say this, but ultimately get turned into NFTs. I think Graham kind of like bookends uh, one chapter of the sports production industry, content production industry, and we move into another one now. I think he, he held that flag incredibly well. Yeah, amen to that. Well, gents, uh, that's the end of another fantastic uh, conversation. Uh, our thanks to our guest, Graham Fry, um, not just for spending this hour with us, but all he's done over the last almost four decades to in- enhance and improve our enjoyment of watching sport on TV. And our thanks, of course, to you for listening as we start another year. Uh, if you don't follow us already, please do so. It's very easy to. You'll find us on Twitter at Entertained R. That's the word A-R-E. You can find me there should you wish to follow the nonsense I've got to spout every now and again at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And you can follow me, Giles Morgan, at Giles Morgan 71 uh, you can follow myself as always uh, RPM Como as in the lake. I just would also like to start at the, um, at the new year uh, a big thanks uh, and vote of faith from Sports Digita for sponsoring this show. This show is basically the merge of Groundsman and the Big Interview, and uh, Sports Digita, you know, helped us in that thinking, and you know they're going to be with us all through the year fortnightly. And, you know, personally, I'm so pleased that it's them because I'm a great believer, as, as this show will point out, that we're in a world of presentation and narrative now. Sports Digita through, you know, their main product, Digideck, really, you know, what they would call a, a PowerPoint killer. Uh, it's a new way to present. Uh, and, um, you know, I think it's just really, really good that they, 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 the guest that they were sponsoring, first off, was the king of sports uh, presentation. So um, really looking forward to this new year of uh, what we're calling uh, Groundsman Conversations brought to you by Sports Digita and you'll always get me in the lake. <laughs> you'll always get me in the lake. Yes, there's plenty of people who wanted to make sure you were there Roger, over the years, I'm sure. Gentlemen, as always, a great pleasure. Uh, let's do this again next week. What do you say? Fantastic. Fantastic.